Today's guest on the Pocket Mastermind podcast is happiness expert and founder and CEO of Friday Pulse. Uh, Nick Marks, welcome to the Pocket Mastermind podcast. How are Hi. you? I'm good, thank you. Well, a very warm welcome and uh, really interested to have a conversation with you. Before we get onto the Friday Pulse and, and what that's all about, it'd be good to get a bit of background as to your journey. I know you're a statistician, therapist, TED talk, <laughs> TED speaker, keynote speaker. The, the list is long. I've seen a picture of you with the Dalai Lama as well, which I want to know a bit, <laughs> bit about as well. Um, but let's go back, let's go to the beginning. Where did you start on your journey that led you to being a happiness expert? Um, well, I, I guess it's, it was one of those random walks through life. I, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a statistician by trade. So I, I um, started out doing health statistics, quality of life statistics, and I eventually started thinking about well-being and happiness. I mean, along the way there, my mother was a family therapist and I, I liked my mother. I liked the way that she thought about the world and I kind of got interested in that world. So I actually trained as a therapist in my late 20s. And, and I guess that influenced me and in I started thinking more about people's experience of life and, and their emotional experience because that's what therapy does. And... Um, and I, I kind of, in the end, merged the two, going more from standard living, quality of life, health statistics into well-being and happiness. How? So, what was that transition like from therapist into statistician? And well, I mean, statistician. How do, you, how, do you, how do how did how does that merge happen? <laughs> well, statistician came first. I yeah. mean, my, you know, I was good at maths at school, and I was. Mm -hmm at Cambridge reading mathematics before I'd really thought about anything. Uh, you know, I was always top of my year and, and I think schools, they like someone to go to Cambridge. So, Oh, you're really good. You go there. They didn't actually ask me if I like, if I, if I would like maths there, maths at university is very different than a level maths. Uh, and so I actually found I didn't enjoy it because it wasn't about the real world. It was getting very, very abstract. And I was more interested in solving real world problems or well, that's what I discovered anyway. Mm -hmm um and but the therapy was just a side project it was sort of a weekend thing really i mean right, okay. I, I worked you know a couple of afternoons a week as a therapist you know and actually i didn't do it very long a couple of years and then i didn't actually i did i did not like the work but i just felt it wasn't what i wanted to do in my life was to be a therapist you, you've got to decide that you want to put the care of others before your own ambition in many ways you want to be a therapist it's a very it's a very selfless task and you and you sit in a room with an individual quite a lot of the time maybe you can do group stuff and you you know it's it's quite i actually think i might you know as i get older and grayer i might well go back and do that and mm -hmm. um i got this fantasy that i'm going to end up looking like father christmas and and i i might do it then but i i've still got i've still got another decade or two in me yet of doing other stuff it's <laughs> brilliant so then what was the what led you really into the like you say from the well-being you started to think about people's experience. How do you then start to think about, or how do we measure that? I mean, the measurement really is is my thing. So basically, I was working a little bit with a think tank in the end of the two, uh, end of the nineteen nineties, beginning of two thousands, mm -hmm. just doing a couple of projects with them. And the director of the think tank uh, said to me, Nick, the word well being is coming into public policy, and nobody knows what it means. <laughs> <laughs> and so he said, so. As far as he was concerned, that was an opportunity for a think tank because there was no think tank that owned that word. And so he said, I'd like you to, his words were literally drive some meaning underneath that. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> and and my idea was i said well if i did that i'd like to measure it i'd like to work out how we measure it because then that to me it feels more solid and you can deal with it more and so we, we devised a project we raised some funding and i started work there not full time to begin with and the work built over time and it became successful um sort of about 2004 we started to publish and and by you know, 2006, we, we had a globally recognized well-being center. And it was because we were doing something different in that there were academics doing work on well-being and, and subjective well-being, it's called, or, or happiness or quality of life. And, but they, they weren't really engaging with policymakers. And I was coming from the other side of like, well, what do policymakers need and how can I intelligently understand academia and apply it? So I guess we just hit a spot and, and, and people loved it because there was measurement and numbers that so became tangible. And, um, and it was actually really very successful program of work. I mean, we, we had a goal that, you know, that we get the Welsh assembly to announce that they would measure well-being. and David Cameron then announced that the whole country was, you know, about six months later. Mm -hmm. And so we actually made a big impact. We weren't the only people working in the space, but we were one of the dominant two or three players in the UK. Um, and, and we achieved an awful lot and, and I ended up doing a Ted talk on it. I mean, I, I suppose that is a, is a, um, a mark of success of what mm -hmm. the work you're doing and i wrote a book i wrote a ted book about it and but i you know it it, it was it, i sort of accidentally got into it but it it was a great decade and so what what do you measure exactly when you're when you're trying to measure uh well-being in a population what's the method behind that I mean, it's fundamentally disappointing, really, in that we, we yeah. are sort of structured surveys about people. And we, we'll ask people simple questions, you know, like, you know, um, if you consider your life overall, how satisfied are you nowadays mm. on a scale of 0 to 10? Or how happy did you feel yesterday? Or how anxious did you feel yesterday? Or um, And so it, it's, it's effectively people have ways of measuring what could be called depression um, or other common mental health disorders. You know, they'll ask you about symptoms, you know, like, do you feel lacking in energy? Can you not sleep? And people will answer, you know, not at all to, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and it's the same way that we do, we look at the positives and we look at, you know, what is, what is, what is functional behavior. And often we found that uh, public mental health has been focused on the negative, you know, been thinking about how do they, deal with suffering, which is a noble thing to do, but the absence of suffering is not necessarily flourishing. And so you, you, you need to think about how you can measure that positive side. And that's what, what basically what I got interested in and, and the work we did. And, and it, you know, I was involved in, you know, pretty groundbreaking work. We did a huge survey across the whole of Europe, 40 nations. No, that's an exaggeration. 28 nations across Europe. It was 40 questions. That's where I had the 40 from. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, on people's uh, personal and social well-being. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're able to sort of create uh, national accounts of well-being and league tables of well-being across Europe in, in quite a detailed way. And, and that helped push policymakers to think, what could they do at this level? We were always basically trying to get on the agenda of policymakers, of national statisticians. You know, I, I got to know the national statistician of the UK, um, you know, and talked with her about what we were doing. And, and that was all part of what led to the Cameron government eventually creating indicators of wellbeing. And are you able to then identify the underlying contributing factors towards those scores? And, and what, what patterns well, were you able to, to see across the country? Well, I mean, there's, there's academics and, and other researchers who, um, 
who who do a lot of this work there's actually something called the the um, world happiness report right. that comes out every year it ranks nations and it looks at the underlying um, factors that do it and uh, factors that at a national level you know explain the differences between nations now it's different than explaining within nations so the things between nations are things like gdp per capita like we would expect of course richer countries are happier because you know people have got more resources stuff yeah yeah i mean not really the shiny stuff actually it's it's more that it goes with health indicators oh, right. so you goes, the, the yeah standard and, quality of living and or basic quality of living i guess yeah and the countries that do best the scandinavian countries and that's partly to do with um yeah partly to do with wealth they're wealthy countries but it's also to do with um uh, distribution of income in that they're fairly equal countries and 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 when countries are more equal and they have higher social safety nets it means that the the poorest members of the society are less miserable mm-hmm. okay so when they see the national you're lagging your lag measures are or your your lagging indicators are, are less laggy than maybe yeah they're less pulling the mean down mm-hmm. so even in the UK, which is much more unequal than, say, Sweden or Norway or Finland, um, or Denmark, those countries, um, we're much more unequal. Our poor drag down our scores much more. Right. Um, and, and the US is even more so. So the US is less happy than the UK. The UK is less happy than Scandinavia. And do you find that in that's quite determined regionally? Within the UK, we do yeah. see differences. Yeah, but actually, um, well, partly related to GDP, but... I mean, if I was to ask you, you know, what do you think would be the happiest region in the UK? I would have always said somewhere up north would probably be happier because whenever I go there, everybody talks to each other and there's a sense of community. And yeah, I mean, you feel down down in the south. You're not far wrong. I mean, London is the least happy region. Right. Uh, And and that takes some people by surprise because they think, oh, London's paved with gold. And of course, Mm. actually, part of the reason is that it's got the highest income inequality in that if you're if you're if you're towards the bottom of the income um, distribution in mm. London, it's right in your face. You see all these people out in swanky cars and swanky restaurants and you see it every day and you think, I wish I was like them. So that makes you feel more, you know, more uh, lower self-esteem, lower confidence, more jealous. So, you know, there's a negative feeling. So um, you also have a huge density of population and, and, and that um, tends to uh, lead to more conflict, more stress pace of life is faster, uh, more pollution, air pollution, noise pollution that affects you. So there's all sorts of negative things that go on there. Um, whereas rural populations tend to be happier. People like space. Uh, uh, they like to have grown up in the place they are. If you've got a sense of place, a sense of belonging, that's a strong part of it. But it turns out the happiest region of the UK is actually uh, uh, Northern Ireland. Oh, really? And, and, and it's interesting because most people that takes by surprise, but... I mean, they're Irish for a start. I mean, if you go to Northern Ireland, you get picked up in a taxi at the airport and you're just having a nice chat with whoever you're with. And they've also got recent experiences of the troubles. Mm-hmm. So they've actually got a recent bad experience to compare themselves to. So that actually sort of helps people feel better with how they are now. Uh, plus they're mainly rural, they're not big density of population. So, you know, so, and I mean, strong sense of community, although of course there's a rather large um, in and out group, depending mm-hmm. whether you're Catholic or Protestant, but you know, so there are, but actually if you're within a strong community, you get the benefits of that more than you get the negative effects of being not in the other community. And and so you tend to see on average cities have a, a lower score than maybe more rural areas, areas sure. but, but London in general has a, has a lower score, you know, city versus city or? I believe so. Yeah. I, I'd have to actually 
look at that uh, more carefully if I like wanted to compare London and Manchester or Birmingham. I haven't looked at it in that way because the way that the data in the UK tends to be presented is London and then in the other regions. Right. And the other regions contain cities but are not just cities, if you get mm. what I mean. Yeah. So I, I, I couldn't give you a strong answer to that. But I mean, just as a general rule, cities are less happy than rural, that's for yeah. sure. It'd be interesting to, to see how that, you know, that comparison, particularly in places like Manchester versus London, may change over time because obviously London's always had a lot of economic migration and so people that aren't originally from there who you know a lot of people living by themselves maybe when things like you know COVID is just you know happening now when that happens and you're more isolated maybe that has a contributing factor and obviously with all the there's been a lot of investment in Manchester over the last 10 years or so and, and more migration heading in that direction I wonder whether you know fewer Mancunians might <laughs> might um, influence their their happiness score. I I I wouldn't know. One can speculate either way. What mm. tends to happen is that is that communities that are more stable are happier than ones that have more right. mixed people. That might not be one that someone like me that's sort of quite a liberal to believe, but that is tends to be what happens. So I I I I don't know. I mean, for me, my data is my sort of um, guru. Mm -hmm. So. I, I don't like to comment too much when I don't know the data well. Maybe you can maybe you can measure that at some <laughs> point and see see yeah. whether it comes to fruition data, or not. The data is there; it exists. It exists. Yeah. I've never looked at it personally. Interesting. So, so someone out there will know that answer. And along that journey, somewhere the Dalai Lama came in, and I've seen this picture, so I was going to talk to you about how that came about. Well, it, the actual picture came about because he was the keynote at a conference I was speaking at. Mm -hmm. And, um, but my connection to, um, and the reason I was sort of introduced to him, which sounds exceptionally grand, that means I spoke to him for 45, 60 seconds. <laughs> 45 or 60 seconds more than most people. <laughs> Is that I work with Bhutan quite a bit. Right. Um, and the kingdom of Bhutan, which is in the Himalayas, mm -hmm. um, it, it borders Chinese occupied Tibet. It borders with um, Nepal. It borders with um, some of India. And it sits on the, well, partly on the Tibetan plain and then drops down into the jungles of northern India. Um, and it's a kingdom. It's an ancient kingdom. It's a Buddhist, uh, Buddhist uh, kingdom, mm -hmm. uh, which has meant that they have a tricky relationship with uh, refugees from Nepal and there is a whole group of people who think the Bhutanese are very bad uh, or, uh, well they've committed atrocities there is a case against them for uh, ejecting a whole load of people from Nepal um, I, I don't know quite the ins and outs of it it's absolutely not very decent behavior that's absolutely mm -hmm. for sure uh, but in Bhutan's quite secretive. So whenever I was there and I try and ask them about what they call the southern problem, you never quite knew. But um, but within Bhutan uh, and the bits of Bhutan I was dealing with, who, who, which was the, the Buddhist community, is that it, it, they're very interesting in their approach to uh, economic growth and that they really do think about whether it can bring benefits to their mm -hmm. uh, citizens. And so they have this idea, uh, this idea and this ideal called uh, gross national happiness. Now the ideal and the reality of it, there's a gap and uh, they wanted to measure gross national happiness and they want to make a big fanfare about how it's an alternative to GDP. And I was one of many people that advised them over a period of time, but I did spend two 
two month periods there working with their so-called statisticians, but actually they had low statistical capacity in, in, the, in the country. They're a small country, 650,000 people. So you can't expect them to have that, but, um, uh, and they, they, they have an indicator gross national capital. I happen to hate it uh, because it's, I don't think it's really measuring what they, they should have done, but their spirit of what they're doing was great. And, it, and that's how I got introduced to him and there's a lovely photograph of me, it which is a very cool. nice photograph of you. <laughs> I, I put on up a social media at, at the time. And so it's still there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you would do, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. Picture of the Dalai Lama. You're not going to hide that one. And he is an extraordinary human being in that this sort of charismatic joy just emanates from him. And he just beams, you know, and just makes you feel good for being alive. So that was rather lovely. What did you manage to say in that 45 to 60 seconds? Oh, so I mentioned Bhutan and I also mentioned something called Action for Happiness, which I'm a board member of in London and he is the patron of. And I, you know, I just said some niceties really, just, you know. <laughs> what do you say in 45 well, seconds? This is the thing, it's hard to know what to say, isn't it? <laughs> when you, you end up in that situation. Yeah. And so then how did that transition into uh, Friday Pulse and measuring the experience of employees? Yeah, so I, I, I worked at this think tank in London for just over a decade. And as I said, it was rather accidental. It was literally this challenge from the, from the director. But of course, it, I had a lovely time with them for, for a decade. And I worked on well-being and uh, climate change, particularly sustainable development, about how can we be um, effectively environmentally efficient at delivering well-being. I mean, that's, that seems to me that's the goal. That's what something I created called the Happy Planet Index was about and that's what my TED talk was mainly about um, but after about a decade I you know I, I, I wanted to do something different and I think that's not a bad thing to do in life every 10-15 years is, is change tack a bit you know and I thought well I'm, I'm in my um, late 40s I can think about doing certainly one more big project maybe two so I ought to get on with it and and I started to think what I wanted to do. And, and I, I thought work was an interesting, ripe area for a bit of disruption and particularly the measurement of employee experience, which, you know, I thought was pretty rubbish. You know, it's sort of annual surveys vaguely about staff engagement or staff satisfaction and not really well defined. I don't think really fit for purpose in the sense that I don't believe there was very good action on that data i don't think it was very responsive to what's going on you know an annual survey they tend to do it tends to be too many questions people tend to look at it and think oh my god i've got to fill this out so then you've got people approaching it without great energy so you haven't got great data not necessarily authentic it takes so long to analyze that by the time you're starting reporting back all of the teams have changed on the ground. Their challenges have changed. So you're acting on data that's out of date. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't act on customer data that was three months old. You know, you, you want to act on data that's, that's immediate. And um, so I thought there's something to be done there. So I've done it. <laughs> yeah, my experience has been with, you know, with those annual surveys is exactly that. It's, they're huge questionnaires and people end up kind of skipping through them very quickly. Some of the questions are quite ambiguous. Um, and so you, even when you do get the after action report, you spend months trying to work out what people actually meant when they answered <laughs> this particular question in a certain way, which probably indicates the question wasn't great in the first place. And loads of time's gone by. It might not be that the question's bad, but 
what tended to happen. I mean, I, I must admit, I made the same mistake when I started thinking about work. I used to do 40 questions and I'd do a survey and do a workshop afterwards to interpret it. And, and you could tell that if the, I'd often do a workshop with small organizations or teams, about 30 people. And we, we, we look at the results and, and, you know, quite often the CEO or the senior leaders would start picking at a question mm-hmm. and you knew that's because they didn't want to engage with the big picture they wanted to get into the detail and undermine the detail so they didn't have to deal with the big picture and so i think what a lot goes on with it and so i actually decided that the best way over time i decided the best way was to try and get the big picture captured statistically really Mm. well uh rather and and the detail could come secondary so instead of asking lots of questions occasionally we ask one question repeatedly and that question is how have you felt at work this week Mm -hmm. And I'll get a bit of answer from very unhappy to very happy. And the idea is that's a very good, good, bad signal. Mm-hmm. Is their work going well? And it's very firmly located in them. The reason I asked how you felt and how happy you are is I want your emotional experience. If I even have to ask you how well has your work gone this week, people immediately start thinking in terms of the organization's agenda. Mm-hmm. But they've achieved their task. They don't think about their emotional experience. I want to know people's emotional experience mm-hmm. because you are an expert in your emotional experience. So uh, that's the data that's reliable and that I want, yeah. yeah. And um, and then I then and then once you've got that good bad signal, you can cut it and you can say, look, team morale is like this in these teams. It's like this in these teams. So you start identifying where hot and cold spots are in the organisation, which places are under stress, which places are doing well, and 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 so and you can't disagree with the data because mm-hmm. even the CEO can answer that question. You see, you can answer, you know, have you, had, you know, were you unhappy or happy at work this week? They can answer that. How you felt work. So, and I think the fact the question is, you know, how, how have you felt at work kind of eliminates the, or to a certain degree eliminates the external factors. It is more asking them how they feel about how they felt at work. And, and maybe, because if you just say, how, do you, how have you felt this week? Yeah. <laughs> then, then that could muddy it, I guess. Well, I mean... It- you, there were different you're going to be influenced, that, but, aren't you? But yes, I mean, there's, there's something we call spillover effects. It's mm-hmm. like you have different domains of your life and factors spill over. So actually, you know, a spillover effect from work to, to personal life is work-life balance, you know, or stress. And if you take that home, you actually open up ethical issues. You open up, um, you know, if, you, if basically you're stressing out your employees and they're going home and, um, you know, being miserable with their families and their kids and their, their partners, then, you know, that's not very good, is it? Um, but actually, of course, people that are very happy and stable in their, in their home lives come to work with more energy. So you can't stop the two things interacting, but the question is designed to be mainly about work and to focus on that. Um, and and they, they do have independence. I mean, I've had times in my life when, you know, work was going really well and, and my home life wasn't. And so, you know, these, these things have some independence and some relationship. Are there any particular things like presenteeism um, that you're able to identify or, but the, or cult, organizations where there is a culture of working much later or starting earlier and, and their happiness score that you can directly compare different organizations against each other and say, well, this is what the culture's like in this organization, this is what it's like in this organization, and there's a, there's a difference in the employee experience. So I, I have a particular take on how you should measure culture, and it's not necessarily the way that some other people think about it because of course you can look at long hours cultures and whether whether they exist or you can uh, look at whether there's bullying discrimination you can look at all sorts of things um uh, and, and positive things too my 
my thoughts on this is that culture has to be experienced somewhere and it's experienced in the individuals who are in that organization. Mm -hmm. So my measure of culture is how happy is the organization because if you've got a good culture, people like working there and, and they're good. Now there are different drivers of that and there are different, and we see differences across different sectors. We see differences across different organizations. So, so we look at five big drivers of positive experience at work. Uh, we call them the five ways to happiness at work and, and they are connect, uh, be fair, empower, challenge, inspire. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, connect is relationships. You know, do you get on with your team members? Do you get on with other teams? You know, do your friends at work and, being fair is about being respected. It's about fair pay. It's about being appreciated at work. It's about work-life balance. Uh, empowering is about being able to be yourself, being trusted and delegated to, to uh, playing to your strengths, you know, influencing your work. Um, challenge is about stretch. It's about learning. It's about um, feedback processes so you can learn. You know, that's what challenge is about. Um, and, and, and then inspire is about meaning, purpose, accomplishment, uh, you know, pride in the organization, those sort of things. And you can think of that as like a Maslow if you want to. The very bottom would be the be fair and then the relationships would come on whatever like that. Um, we, we tend to start with connect because it's the one that's the biggest effect size, you know, that relationships are the biggest one. You know. So, um, but, you know, and, and so those are the sort of factors. And then, of course, there's details that go on with that in that, in that you know, if, if you had a long work hours culture, then work-life balance wouldn't be good, you know, uh, and... And it might be that, you know, if you're a younger organization with younger people, you know, perhaps people don't mind that their work-life balance isn't so great. Whereas if they've got families or older, they're going to mind more. So there'll be differences between organizations. It's difficult between differences between sectors, you know, that, you know, we find typically that something like advertising uh, agencies will have great challenge, great empowerment, treated fairly, good relationships, but maybe people don't find them the most meaningful work sometimes. And actually what, what do they tend to find is ad agencies often find people in the early thirties start moving to do work that they find more meaningful, not for profits have the opposite thing where people find their work very meaningful, but maybe they don't find the internal systems are great or the relationships aren't great. I mean, I've rarely seen bitterness and fighting as much as sometimes within not for profits, you know, it's quite interesting that, you know, they could, they've got some external aspiration, to save the world and actually don't like each other. So, I mean, there's things that go on like that. And it's basically different fingerprints for different organizations. And, and, and there's sets of things that we can see, like, you know, if you're an accountant, then the, the biggest factor that will improve your happiness at work is? No idea. I'm not an accountant. <laughs> feeling appreciated. Really? Because they don't feel appreciated. So the ones that do feel appreciated and they feel a bit of love, you know, they're the ones that, you know, re- really do. Whereas, you know, if you're in a, in a profession which has probably got more appreciation in it, such as, you know, frontline care or something like that, you know, it will probably be work-life balance or, you know, or something like that or learning or something like that. So there are different things for different sectors that come out first. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and yeah, we see this. And if in your own work, you know, if you, if you got a job you're not particularly happy with, then, you know, think of those five things, connect, be fair, empower, challenge, inspire. One of those will be going wrong for you at least. Yeah. Oh, at least. Yeah. I'd imagine so. Yeah. And then what, so how do organizations take the information that you're gathering and then apply it to positively impact the employee experience and, and the culture and in those, in those five areas? 
yeah, actually, in lots of ways, this is something I sort of learned from therapy, which is that I used to go to see this lovely old therapist. I mean, she probably was in her 60s when I saw her. She's sadly passed away now. I, I have, think it actually should be illegal for wise old people to die. I think they yeah, should I agree. <laughs> <alive. You> know, <laughs> shouldn't be allowed to die. She was lovely. She was called Nan. And um, she used to say to me, Nick, really, a therapist only does three things. Uh, they listen to their clients. They reflect back to them what they've heard. And then they work with them to identify what better ways of living. And we do the same thing with statistics in that we listen to our population. We reflect back with our reporting and we try and help them move towards better futures. And, and the whole Friday Pulse platform is built on that principle. It's basically a real time feedback loop. So on a Friday, there's a clue in the name, Friday Pulse. Um, yeah, we all asked, it was a Monday, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, there is a business called Monday already, isn't there? So yeah, there is. I actually have the, uh, the, the, the trademark to Friday. Really? In the UK, yeah, and in the US. Uh, and we've actually more recently decided we'd call ourselves Friday Pulse because for SEO and search engines, it's quite hard to just put Friday in. You can't find us. So we decided we'd call ourselves Friday Pulse so that you could, if you put Friday Pulse in, you find us straight away. Yeah, put Friday in, we're about page 20. So, um, you know, so, um, but anyway, so we, we, <laughs> um, we are called Friday. Trademark a, a, a day of the week. <laughs> it's quite... Well, I guess that Monday must have done, do not it? You know, the, wow, true. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, and I, the Saturdays they call themselves that. I don't know, you know. <laughs> and when we were naming the company, um, we worked with these branding guys and girls, and and they they were great fun, and they gave us a long list of names, and uh, and in there was Friday, and I went, that's genius. The church has got Sunday. We'll have Friday. <laughs> and, and, you know, I just love the idea. And it's a happy word Friday, isn't it? So encapsulates, it's a, it's a work word, Monday to Friday, it's a happy word. So it was very, very clever. But the only problem was the SEO uh, issue, which... Mm, it's probably a very, very highly used word. So... Yeah. So anyway, we, we're Friday Pulse now. And we still call ourselves Friday quite a lot um, as a sort of nickname. Um, but on a Friday, we ask people how their week was and we collect that data we give them a chance to answer on mondays if they didn't um, answer um over the, uh, before then and then we collect all the data and feed it straight back and we feed it back yes to senior leaders but actually to every team leader gets their own report on a tuesday whenever they close it it will show them how happy their team was but we also ask them what was the success for you this week have you got anyone you want to thank uh and any frustrations and these are written pieces of feedback and they kind of form the basis for a team meeting. Mm -hmm. They help a team um, reflect on what's gone well for them last week and what hasn't. How can they build on the positives? How can they tackle the negatives? And it, it's getting that very into everybody's week. Because it's not, I think quite a lot of people think that, you know, happiness or engagement is something you do once a quarter. Oh, we'll do something, we'll set aside an afternoon and we'll deal with that then. No, it's in your it's in your every it's in every minute of every day but take half an hour a week to think about it you get it into people's working week so that's what we're designed to be and that's and that's really the, the you know the if magic doesn't exist but if the magic exists it's in this sort of repeated uh sort of uh process and and in a, in a way again like therapy therapies every week you know it's a actually 
you know, you can't just go and see a therapist once and expect a breakthrough is something that, you know, if you go to counselor or therapist or, or any other practice, whether that's your meditation, indeed, anything that you do. I mean, if you want to get fitter, you know, it's not about doing a one-off marathon. It's about the weekly training, the daily training. It's whatever you do is that repeated process uh, that actually brings the results rather than the final outcome. You know, you know, you get a sense of achievement from doing a marathon, but actually your fitness level comes from all the, the preparation for it. Um, so it's that repeated process and it, and it needs to get in there and it needs to just be, you know, have a team leader who is open to hearing feedback, open to, um, listening to their, their reports, uh, caring about them. You know, actually this week we're recording is mental health awareness week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with COVID everybody's mental health is under pressure. Even a sort of happy guy like me is feeling the, well, the monotony, the it's gone of, on a while, isn't it? Yeah, the loss of small freedoms. You know, although you know they are coming back now. I mean, it's amazing how grateful we are. We can go for a walk in the park. I mean, thought <laughs> <before> that <laughs> suddenly that would be a luxury. I know, which we've taken to doing on a daily basis now, which we didn't used to do before. So would come out of it. It's like the evening. Now go for the evening walk for half an hour, forty-five minutes. Yeah, that'd be good. I think, you know, I mean, if you come out of this with, with better hygiene habits, like, you know, washing your hands more actually would reduce all sorts of problems in society. I mean, it might sound so trivial, but it's true. Mm-hmm. And we come out, you know, with a little bit more healthy habits. So I did read someone who said that we're coming, we, we've got three types of people coming out, out of COVID. Have you heard this? No, I haven't. Uh, um, a, let me get it right. A hunk, <laughs> okay. a chunk, or drunk <laughs> and i thought well two two out of three ain't bad <laughs> and i'm not the first i mean i think definitely my drinking's gone up i mean I, i'm not a heavy drinker but i you know it's sort of like i think five days a week i have a drink now and it's I so easy use... isn't it because you kind of got to you get to the end of the day and you think well i'm not going yeah. in the morning i mean it's one of the reasons i go out for a walk at the end of the day is to sort of try and get over that itch of having a drink at six, which is way too early. So if I go out for a walk at six, at least I put it off till 7.15, 7.30 then. <laughs> I love it. So have you seen quite a big impact from the surveys that you do and the, and the data you collect from, from the businesses that you work with during this period? Yeah, totally massive. And actually, I mean, it, I didn't think to look actually the first couple of weeks because I mean, I was looking at our results because we mm-hmm. talk about them and, and my team that look after clients, we're talking with their clients, but I, you know, we didn't design Friday Pulse to be picking up global trends. You know, it's designed to be an internal tool for an organization that helps them manage the challenges that they face. And, and of course, you know, as much as, and even with an organization, you normally have different things going on. Like, you know, they talk about, oh, we've got one culture, but actually you've got microcultures everywhere. You've got teams under different pressures. And, and that's actually the, the benefit of using Friday Pulse is that you help knowing where you need to pay attention to and who you need to need to support more if you're, you know, a, a people leader or a HR exec or a senior leader, you can see where to put your resources. That's what it's designed for. Um, but we, we had an average. So we, we, we create a hap- we call it happiness KPI for organizations and it runs from naught to a hundred and over 70 is a good score. We call it green. And, you know, and across all of our client base, the average through 2019 and the early part of 2020 was 69.6 mm-hmm. right? 
and it's going up and down each week. There's things that go, it's a little higher at Christmas, you know, uh, a little less high, you know, it, it was higher in August and then it drops a bit, you know, there's, there's some seasonal effects, but, but broadly speaking, 70. COVID hits and then in the middle of March, it drops to, I think it was 54 across all of our clients. Some clients were like down to 30, 20, you know, some, some parts of the world maybe had less of an impact but the average was something like 55 that first week and then it's come back but it's now bumbling along at 65 average 63.63.5 i think last week 64.5 the week before it hasn't quite recovered no it hasn't quite recovered that's and that five points that's across all of our clients you know and that's that's a big difference you know that's a big loss of team morale um and that's you know that's a lot of people you know, less happy than they were. And even though people want to be resilient, we haven't got back to where we are. And so, and of course, you know, we, you know, you will know this and everybody will know this. There's a variability of experience there. I mean, I'm, I'm really, I'm fine. I don't, you know, my children are grown up. Um, I, I live with my wife who I like and not only love, I like, I enjoy hanging out with her. So it's very easy. Uh, you know, we, we, we've had, we actually haven't got teens here this week, but we have had teens here. So we're second marriage and Zoe's got three teenagers. They were here for five weeks actually with their dad now for a couple of weeks, which is a lovely relief, but, but no, they, I love them. But, um, but you know, um, so we, you know, there's nothing, you know, I've got a corner of uh, a room that I can work in. You know, I, I used to work at home one day a week, two days a week anyway. It's fine. It's fine. But some of my team have got, a two and a four year old in the house, both of them trying to work, no health, no childcare, uh, you know, maybe a partner that's, you know, furloughed or very stressful work or whatever, you know, and they're, they're, they're climbing up the walls. It'd be interesting. So I think it's going to be a mix, you know, obviously most office based roles are still working remotely wherever, wherever they can. And as, as obviously we start to go back to work and go into the office, it'll be interesting to see, what that impact will, will actually have because I, I'd imagine, you know, I've spoken to quite a few people that have said the, the, the one thing, the good thing that's come out from all of this is that they're not commuting. And in fact, a lot of people are dreading going back to the commute, although they want, they're quite looking forward to working in an office with their colleagues again and all of that stuff. But actually there's elements of what they were doing that they didn't particularly like. Um, probably as much as they've got the cabin fever of, of being at home now. Yeah. I mean, st statistically the commute is the least happy part of the day. Mm. Um, and actually the slight differentiation, the commute to work is the least happy. Yes, say so the one on the, the way home is not so bad, is it? Commute back from work is the second most unhappy thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, and Can you find any, it might put you on the spot, but do you find any variance in the, in the way people commute? Yeah, there definitely is. So when I have looked at data like that, that if you walk to work, it's much uh, less stressful for you. The length of the commute matters. So if a commute under half an hour is, is sort of okay. When you go above an hour each way, it becomes quite stressful, really affects work-life balance. And, you know, people that perhaps, you know, decide to, move out of you know one of the big cities and and commute further in for house prices maybe for their family to live out thing and that maybe you know one of the partners takes on the responsibility of the long commute they underestimate how much that undermines their their 
their work happiness and, their, and more importantly, their overall mental health, overall well-being. And so long commutes are really bad. Long commutes are really bad on the train or in the car. Not much difference. Yeah. But if you bicycle or you walk to work, uh, people tend to be uh, less stressed than they were the other types. Interesting. And uh, that's good that the government are now putting more money into <laughs> cycling and walking to work because hopefully that will uh, have some benefit. Yeah, I mean, you know, from a sustainability issue, the worst way is to drive. Mm-hmm. But from a COVID way, the worst thing is to take, you know, the underground, the, the, yeah. the, the bus, the train. And so that's a bit disappointing because, you know, with the best will in the world, a lot of people aren't going to start bicycling to work, you know, and you have to live quite close to walk, don't you? So mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm not, not very convinced of the long-term effects on reducing carbon emissions from this over the next, well, we'll see. But uh, so I, I, um, I, I, cause we were moving a lot away from the car and of course public transport is very efficient from a, just a purely energy perspective. So we'll have to see that, but I mean, I, I wouldn't want to go on a train at the moment. No, you know, you, you know, you don't know where, I mean, it's a really sad thing, isn't it? That we've now. To be honest, I mean, the, the the tube even more so than the. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was I was using the tube, you know, in early March. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was in London up till somewhere around the fourteenth of March. Can't remember somewhere around that. And I, you know, and you knew that it was happening, and you didn't quite know what. And I just found myself standing on the tube going trying to sort of breathe less deeply as if that would help. <laughs> and it's just really anxiety levels about, and you're looking yeah. at people thinking, Oh, you, are you, are you, yeah. have you got it? You know, are you dirty? And it's like, you know, it's like, and it brings in this whole negativity and terrible all yeah. sorts of biases. I mean, you know, you just instinctively, you know, look at people who look other, therefore other races, mm-hmm. Oh, you know, are they Chinese are they, you know, and it's like, it just brings out a whole thing you don't want to be bringing yeah. out. So, I think we're going to have to do an awful lot of healing and, and we're, and we've got to be quite a long way away from people feeling comfortable with other people. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even, you know, where I live out in the, in the sticks, really walking on the path and I mean, it's never mind two, never mind two meters. I think people give everyone five meters. Of yeah. space. <laughs> it's a, it's ridiculous. And, uh, and it'd be interesting to see what that transition will be like going back to being within, you know, reasonable close distance of of other people and and how long it takes for people to feel comfortable doing that it may never i don't know we'll see i mean you know you'd think that i mean this is i mean this is very unfortunate for all sorts of people you would think things like theaters and cinemas i was just going to say the theater you know are going to really really struggle to get persuade people that they want to do stuff like that i imagine that I mean, and concerts and festivals, I mean, you know, they're all gone this summer, but I mean, will they, will people even go in 2021? I don't know. know, know. Yeah. And I guess I I would say the uh, Tuesday I went out, I went out cycling with a friend of mine because now you're allowed to cycle with one other person as long as you stay two meters apart, of course. And, um, we were riding down not far from Henley and rounded a corner and there's a, there's a whole group of people. Uh, and lots of people stood around waiting for something to come along the road. And it's the first time I've seen a group of people for a while. So it kind of, it really stood out. And then we rode a bit of, a little further down the, down the road and there were even more people uh, all parked in a field, all lining this country road, waiting for something to come along and they'd all forgotten quite quickly. <laughs> so who knows is the honest answer. I mean, outside is, is actually better than inside. And, and there's all this evidence that, you know, that, the wind takes so maybe outdoor festivals with 
a lot more space between people will start i don't i don't know i mean people are desperate i mean not desperate people you know you could see the beaches this last weekend it was warm we're full and of course people want to get outside i mean if you you lived in a flat with kids in london oh my goodness yeah and so i was you know i was very pleased when boris said you know people can sunbathe that is that is because that's for your mental health i mean it's like massively important that people can get outside and and actually maybe would appreciate that more but I mean, we we'll have to see. I mean, basically, economic behavior is driven by confidence. Yep. And confidence is a psychological experience. And I think people will not be confident spending for a long time. So the recession will be harsh, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's what I'm saying. It's interesting. I think for a change, the press initially weren't really focusing too heavily on that as an impact. It was all about the narrative around the actual COVID. And I think now I've started to notice in the last week that the the press is focusing more on the doom and the gloom of the the long deep recession and you kind of it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy to a certain degree right because the more negative press that there is out there the more people it influences behavior and it becomes a kind of a feedback loop all of its own and probably stay away from so, i mean we're actually renovating a house at the moment and we've just had to continue because you, you can't yeah. stop a project once, you, you know, we'd started in January and, you know, we need to finish, you know, in the summer, mm-hmm. just, you know, just have to carry on. Did you have to pause at any point? We did not. Our builder was quite clever, but we have not had any discounts or anything, if not the opposite. Yeah. We've got materials going up and apparently right now there's no plaster available. So for plastering, no, all the plaster factories in Europe shut down, and there's a as a, a European shortage of plaster. So, <laughs> who'd have thought it? Yeah. <laughs> and just one last question on the on the Friday Pulse: What kind of organisations do you do you work with? So we work with a range of organisations, but mostly from fifty to one thousand right. people uh, in that range. Um, it's not that it doesn't work with smaller; it's actually just about business models that, with the smaller. I mean, I use it with my team when we were only 14 yeah but um so uh and we do have clients larger than a thousand uh, but at the moment we are offering three months for free to any organization size 50 to 1000 to use friday to get used to the data we understand that you know people departments hr departments are under pressure they're not really getting the checkbooks out at the moment so come and use it see if you like the data work with it use it mm-hmm. and no better time to be honest i mean like we're talking about that transition back in being able to monitor the actual effects of yeah the decisions being made you know phasing in uh not phasing in all of these kind of things and i know from people i speak to there's there is some anxiety about how they will be asked to go back to work when they'll be asked you know if all of these things and I think being able to have measure the impacts on a real time basis is going to be essential because yeah, risk. I, I think I think it's always been important, but with particularly remote working and you're not yeah. picking up the vibe just naturally. You know, we're a tool that helps you pick up that vibe statistically. So and and that, but I think it, it's always been helpful because people they they don't, they don't know what's going on in different teams, and when you see the data, you do. Yeah, and so actually you don't know what you don't know now you do know and actually it helps you if you if you want to consistently create a good culture across your organization you need data and you need data that you can look at on a monthly basis at the very least and so um 
and you need to know who who's able to recover from setbacks and who isn't because that's about resilience so everyone has setbacks every team has setbacks every organization has setbacks it's 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 um ridiculous to think everyone can be happy all the time but it's how much you quickly you bounce back that's the thing and the data will show you that and that's one of the reasons we do weekly because if there's a shock to the system it's normally contained within a working week and uh or, or it might go into the next week but then you know it and it's really dangerous if it's three or four weeks in a row whereas one bad week and people recover is not a danger signal it's a there's a shock to the system we bounce back mm-hmm. you, can, and you can learn quickly and, and if yeah. it was a particular decision that was made or an act or something you can know not to re- repeat that <laughs> quite quickly. yeah i mean it's, it's normally a little more diffuse than that but yes of course you know and i know and it's often about relationships you know right um though actually at the moment i think it, it, you know where, where we got special i think it's about relationships i think it's about sort of monotony and isolation one thing i'd say it, that sense it is relationships is isolation from your colleagues yeah yeah and where can people find out more about friday pulse and uh eunuch yes uh so uh i'm quite active on linkedin so nick marks uh, has no k so it's nic marks i also have my own website nickmarks.org um uh, it's dot org because it was when i was in the not-for-profit sector and I've had it for 15 years or whatever. Um, and then um, Friday Pulse, fridaypulse.com is our website. Uh, you can find out there about the free offer. You can sign up for newsletters. Uh, we produce a newsletter pretty much every week. Some weeks we have to skip for operational reasons, but um, three, three, three a month at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and lots of good stuff in that. So th- that's where you can mainly find me. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for giving up your time. Uh, it's been a really interesting talk and, Hopefully we'll do it again at some point. Yeah, thank you, Dave. It's great.